the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. It is a delight to bring back Dr. Tevi Troy. He's a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, the author of several books, most recently Fight House, Rivalries in the White House, from Truman to Trump, the former Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services. He is also, believe it or not, one of my best friends. Tevi, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Seth. It is always a pleasure to be on your terrific show. Um, Your terrific column is what I wanted to talk to you about here. Uh, It's, of course, you know, a somewhat lacrimal subject, but Mm -hmm. no one does it better than you, and and you've kind of um, owned this territory for some time now, obituaries of conservatives and eulogies of them, popular and and well-known conservatives. And every year you kind of do a conservatives we've lost over the course of the year. I remember talking to you about it last year. <clears throat> they publish it over at the Washington Examiner. People can get a link to it from my Twitter feed if they want. Um, Tevi, uh, what, what, before I get into the individuals here and some of the interesting stories, when you go about doing this, how, how do you do it? When someone passes away, do you take a note and then do you examine their lives? You're, you're, you're a historian. How do you go about doing this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Seth, and I appreciate you having me on to discuss it. I keep a running tally during the year of people who lived lives well-lived and think people who should be appreciated when the end of the year comes. Because, look, they, you know, they left this mortal coil, but it doesn't mean they're forgotten. And That's right. Their contributions right. are no longer appreciated. And I think that with all the tumult in the conservative movement of the last couple of years, I kind of uh, take a little pride in this uh, in this role I've taken on of being the uh, the Saint Peter of yeah, the uh, yeah. passed on conservative. Yeah, uh, and you know there are some people who I think just don't make it and don't don't write and uh, don't belong in the pantheon. But, uh, and you, and you told me once upon a time, I don't remember when, it might have been recently, it might have been a long time ago, I, I just don't recall. You said when you do these things, you kind of try to look for something a little different than the standard, right? Yeah, that's true. Certainly in the, in the individual obituaries, I kind of know what line an obituary writer is going to take on a person, let's say the Bob Dole, and I try and do something a little different. So when Bob Dole passed a few weeks ago, I knew everybody was going to say, oh yeah, war hero, senator. Uh, but I really focused in my obituary on two relationships that defined him, his close mentorship by Richard Nixon mm-hmm. and his his tight and, and uh, difficult rivalry with George H.W. Bush. Two things most people didn't know about, frankly. Right. I mean, he knew Nixon dating back to the 50s. And in fact, he, when he was a young congressman from Canada, before he was a senator, he brought Nixon to meet members of the House and people were thrilled to have that opportunity to meet Nixon. And Nixon, who was kind of on the outs at the time, uh, really appreciated it. So he had this long relationship with Dole. In fact, he gave Dole notes on how to run for president in 1996. Dole, if you recall, ran for president after Nixon is no longer alive. Nixon dies, but he uses Nixon's notes that he wrote in the early 90s 
as part of his campaign strategy. So they had a long-standing relationship. Both men benefited from it. And, and I think that that's worth examining. At the same time, he and George H.W. Bush were rivals mm-hmm. dating back to 1973 mm-hmm. when George H.W. Bush supplanted Dole mm-hmm. at the Republican National Committee. Dole was so angry at being pushed out, he, he says he's been bushwhacked, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. is a, a nice mm-hmm. play on words, I think. And forevermore, he and Bush are at odds. They both want the vice presidential nod in 76. Dole wins that one. They both won... Uh, want the presidential nod in 1980. Neither win because Reagan gets the, the nomination, but Bush gets to become vice president. Then they go at it hammer and tongs in 1988, and Bush uh, becomes president after that, but then he loses after one term, and Dole runs in 96. He gets the nomination, but he ultimately fails once again to make it to the White House. And then even more interestingly, in 2000, when George W. Bush, Bush's son, runs for president and wins, he runs against Liddy Dole, yeah. Dole's wife. Yeah. So that rivalry goes on and on and on. Speaking of Nixon and Liddy, there's another Liddy that passed away and made it into your column. Tell us about G. Gordon. Yeah, G. Gordon Liddy is a fascinating That, that was character. a pretty good segue. Come on. That was pretty darn yeah, good. Yeah, that was, that was a double seg. Okay. Yeah. So, so G. Gordon Liddy uh, is a prosecutor in the 1960s, and he actually is involved in putting uh, T- Timothy Leary, who is kind of a big drug guru at Harvard, uh, behind bars, and that's how he first makes a name for himself. He attracts the attention of the Nixon administration, gets a job in the um, in the Treasury Department in early in the Nixon administration, and eventually migrates onto the group that the plumbers, the group that's supposed to control leaks, plug leaks. That's when they were called the plumbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, is the group that becomes very involved in the Watergate break-in, and, and Liddy was a part of that. Ended up serving time in jail as a result, and then he gets out of jail. He's still a young man. And he goes to Hollywood. He starts doing uh, TV appearances. He appears on, as a villain on Miami Vice. And, and he often, often appears to heavy on, a, on network uh, dramas in yep. the 80s. And he writes this best-selling memoir called, called Will. I remember it um, being a very compelling book. And uh, it, it becomes a TV movie. I remember and, the, it being a very compelling TV movie. Does anyone who yeah. saw it ever forget the scene of the hand in the candle? The Nobody. Hand over, the, over the hand over the yeah, candle, right? No one the forgets it. The open right. flame. Right. Right. I mean, he tries to show how committed he is. Um, and it's actually from a job interview where he's trying to show a woman how committed he was to the uh, cause of Nixon. And he said he wanted people who were that committed. The woman obviously was not uh, enamored of this uh, job interview strategy and then ultimately did not take the job. But it mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, that was on TV in, the, I guess, the early 80s. And, I think so. Yeah. Take your eyes away from it. Couldn't forget it. So then he goes um, after Rush Limbaugh, whom I also mentioned in the, uh, in the piece, uh, he goes into this area of talk radio. And he, you know, given that he's always had a flair for the dramatic, uh, it turns out that he's pretty good at talk radio. Yeah, and uh, he, he has a talk radio show for many years, and he's still. And I think he did four radio. hours. I mean, you know, three hours is hard, and it's standard. I think he did four. I think he did a four-hour show, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and that voice, that kind of yep. loud, gravelly voice. Yep. I mean, he's just—he's good at what he did. Yep. And uh, and he took he, it into his, you know, twilight years. Yeah, and it's just—I I just think it's worth noting um, that you know he—he he didn't lead a blameless life. No. Uh, but he led a life worthy of, of examination. Speaking of talk radio, that's the big one, isn't it? The big death this year in conservatism. Hard to say, yeah. hard to find different and new things, but you did. You did. Well, what, what I focused on in my longer obituary of Rush was his relationship with multiple presidents, yeah. both Democrat and Republican. Yeah. The Republicans 
tried to win him over, including George H.W. Bush tearing his luggage into the White House when he comes for a visit. Unheard of that yeah. a president would do such a thing. Uh, but the Democrats were kind of flummoxed by him and tried to come up with strategies to deal with him. And when the Republicans win the Congress in 1994, a Democratic congressman who's defeated tells Bill Clinton one of the things that Clinton did wrong in losing Congress in, in 1994 was that he didn't take enough account of, of Russia and Bob. And so here's this guy who really takes the country by storm in the late 80s and especially early 90s. But he galvanizes Republican opposition to the Clinton presidency at a time when Republicans were kind of uh, divided and confused. Sounds familiar? Sounds a little familiar, yes. And I remember the 94 stuff with Rush because it's known as the Gingrich Revolution. And fair enough, Gingrich earns a lot. It deserves a lot of credit for what he did in shaping a nation, you know, local races into a national agenda. But I also remember shortly after the election, there were a lot of briefings on Capitol Hill and in other places around the country for the new members of Congress. And Rush was part and parcel of all of that. I, you know, history doesn't reveal its alternatives, A.J.P. Taylor said. But I don't know if Newt could have done it without Rush. That was as much Rush's as it was Newt's. Yeah. I got. You mentioned A.J.P. Taylor. I got to say my favorite quote from his, yeah. which is, the book that lies in the heart of every man should usually stay there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe but we need to read about, more A.J.P. Taylor. <laughs> right. Marxist historian, not necessarily of our ill. No, but, um, right, right. a sharp pen. And, uh, you know, when I write a book, I think about that. I mean, just uh, kind of meet the A.J.P. Taylor standard. <laughs> By the way, I would take those Marxist historians of yore over the historians we have today. You know, I was thinking about this. We'll get back to the obits in a second. And feel free to disagree with me always. But, you know, I was thinking about um, the textbook wars we're going through kind of now with the CRT and the revision in 1619 and all that stuff that we seem to go through every 10 or 12 or 15 years. And... You know, I, I did a survey of my own uh, with some people you would remember if I said their names. They may not mean much to the audience. But we were doing a survey of American history textbooks. And uh, for years and years and years, the popular one was edited uh, and compiled by uh, Henry Steele Commager. Now, it's a funny thing to think about that because th this was a very, very good textbook. And if you read the first issue of National Review and you read William Buckley's Credenda, you know, where he has the famous standing athwart history yelling stop, he actually says we are here because Henry Steele Commager is too popular. <laughs> Just think, you know, what we wouldn't do for Henry Steele Commager yeah, today. What we wouldn't do for you can stay a bit. Can I take a break? And come? We'll be right back with more from Dr. Tevi Troy. Feel free to call. If you have any questions for him as well, six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. We are talking to Dr. Tevi Troy about his piece in the Washington Examiner. <coughs> Excuse me, conservatives we lost in 2021. He does this every year now. And uh, we were talking, we've covered uh, quite a few in any pantheon they belong. Uh, Don Rumsfeld passed away this year. Uh, Tevi, fair to say some people truly loved him. Some people truly hated him. Um, I don't know that there was a middle ground. You may be right in, in, or, or in, in, in telling me I'm wrong about that. But really, really a man whose footprints and fingerprints are all over the latter part of the 20th century and not just his last, uh, his last duty under the George W. Bush administration. 
Yeah, absolutely, Seth. Uh, you know, he was chief of staff under Ford. Uh, he was also defense secretary under Ford, the youngest defense secretary at the time, and then later under Bush, he becomes the oldest defense secretary. So he's got both uh, titles. Um, and he was just very involved in Republican foreign policy thinking for a very long time. He's another person who had a rivalry with George H.W. Bush. We always think of George H.W. Bush uh, as a nice guy, and he was. Uh, but he also had some sharp elbows and some people who uh, weren't necessarily the biggest fans of him. And um, if it, it's interesting, in um, when my piece has been moving around on, on Twitter, uh, I think I've got the most pushback on Rumsfeld, because uh, people are, are very angry at him about the Iraq war. I was wondering if who—it's uh, interesting. You get more pushback on Rumsfeld than Rush. I was going to say another person people either loved or hated, not a lot of middle ground. Oh, I got some pushback on Rush, too. Yeah, but Rumsfeld um, and, and, more you know, so. And, and yeah. on Powell. Yeah. And, uh, look, people uh, have strong opinions. What I'm trying to do in this article, Seth, is show conservatism to be a big tent and to recognize that there was a time in the past when conservatives recognized we were all kind of moving in a generally the same direction. And I... that there might be some internal disagreements, but we all were pro-America. And remember that Norman Hart article we read a few weeks ago? Uh, the key question is, do you think America is a force for good or not? Yeah. And these people who I highlight all thought America was a force for good. Which, which, is, the, which is the starting point. Absolutely right to point it out. I don't know if you'll agree with me. You, you do a lot of book reviews. You're the author of several books yourself, but you do a lot of book reviews too. Do you, I remember reading Don Rumsfeld's biography, autobiography that came out uh, roughly seven or so years ago. And I remember thinking that was one of the best autobiographies I've ever read. I don't know if you read it or share of that view. Uh, there's a second question in there. You can feel free to answer that any way you want. But also the second question, which is my memory, too, is he cut his teeth in domestic policy under working for Richard Nixon at some level, and particularly in the area of welfare, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that is absolutely true. He was um he was in the office that was trying to combat poverty mm-hmm. under the Nixon administration and showed himself to be very effective as someone who uh, Nixon and Ford thought well of. Um, and then he actually called back. I believe he's um, got an ambassadorial position in Europe. He's called back to serve as chief of staff in the Ford administration because he was so competent. He was also a congressman, uh, people forget, in the 1960s in Illinois. So, I mean, here's the guy who was just good at what he did. Uh, also ran a pharmaceutical company for a while when he was outside of government. So he was just one of those people, and, and I did have the pleasure of meeting him a few times. He just exuded confidence. He was very smart. He asked tough and good questions. And um, he, he dedicated his life to trying to help America. He was the head of, was it Searle? I think it was Searle. Yeah. And yeah. they had, I don't know if you had this as a kid, they had a, when he was, it turns out this was his idea or his brainchild, uh, when NutraSweet came out, developed by Searle, his marketing strategy was to mail a gumball sweetened by NutraSweet uh, to, I don't remember how many Americans, not every American, but uh, like six figures worth of Americans. I, I remember getting one in the mail. Do you remember that? I did not get one in the mail, but I do remember the story. So that was him. Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. Good? Yeah, it was interesting. Well, I was excited to get that gumball on the mail. I kind of felt like Charlie getting a golden ticket, but uh, yeah. you know, I didn't own, end up owning a candy factory. Uh, that's the last line from Willy Wonka. Uh, just remember the boy who gets everything he ever dreamed of. You know, be careful of that boy. <laughs> yeah, but, so, at least, but at least you got the gumball. I, at least I got the Donald Rumsfeld gumball. Absolutely right. One of the people his elbows were sharp with was someone else 
who passed away this year that you put in the conservative column, and I think it's fair to do so, uh, though maybe not my kind of conservative using your and Norman Podhoritz's starting point, and that's uh, Colin Powell. Yeah, also another one where I had to put some thought into it. But Colin Powell served as a senior foreign policy official for three Republican administrations. He's Secretary of State, he's National Security Advisor, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, and he, he was a very important figure in Republican foreign policy circles for a very long time. I know late in life he migrated to the Democrat. Uh, I don't know that dispositionally he was full-on Democrat, but I know as an African-American he uh, was very uh, proud to see Barack Obama become president. Again, you know, not a decision that I made, but uh, that, that was part of the decision-making process. And then um, he was uncomfortable with, with Donald Trump. And so, uh, you know, I guess four straight elections towards the end of his life where he voted for the Democrats. But I don't think that makes him actually make them a Democrat. And I, I, you know, who knows where he would be in, in 2024. He was interestingly, yeah, he's one of these figures, Tevi. I don't know how to describe him or maybe you and I could think of other examples, that is um, that he is actually a conservative, but he didn't always vote conservative. But he was a conservative in, in a lot of things seen and unseen. I know of a few unseen things. I know, yeah, I, agree. I, know, I, agree. I know the work his wife did in, with uh, what was then called inner city youth, what we now call maybe urban, uh, in teaching abstinence. Very strong on that in the, uh, in the uh, uh, urban communities. Very strong. That was then and maybe still now is a conservative, a very conservative position. And also, you read his memoir and the reverence he had for the U.S. military yeah. and for his immigrant experience and for coming up from poverty in America. And, you know, those are conservative yeah. values. Yeah. And so, again, you know, I don't agree with all of the decisions he was making in the Bush administration, and I certainly... I uh, don't agree with his, his recent vote choices, but um, but he's a guy who certainly has a conservative disposition and, um, and had a great reverence for America and for the U.S. military. All right. Let's you and I both get into trouble and give ourselves a prophylactic vaccine by saying we will be quoting William Buckley on this point that will get us in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to us about Barbara Keating aid. Well, uh Barbara Keating Aid was a woman, maybe one of the least well-known people in, in the piece, uh, but she ran for Senate in uh, New York in the 1970s. And there's that quote from uh, Bill Buckley that uh, you can read if you. I'll read it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm used to taking the arrows. I'm quoting William Buckley <laughs> <laughs> about Barbara Keating Aid. He said, "She is a beautiful woman, so that right away she violates a New York taboo." which steadfastly refuses to put beautiful women on the ballot, preferring people like Representative Bella Abzug. Close quote. You know what? Let's give, uh, let's give the people at, uh, at uh, Media Matters uh, a chance to catch up to that while we take a commercial break. We'll come back with more <laughs> on uh, Barbara Keating and a few other things uh, and a few other. It's interesting. Uh, a lot of these guys were foreign policy. There's a couple other foreign policy giants we have to talk about who slipped this mortar coil as well. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Tevi Choi. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, Dr. Tevi Troy, the Honorable Dr. Tevi Troy. That is a, a title he earned by being a Senate-confirmed Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, is the author of several books himself, including Fight House, 
rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Uh, and uh, we're going through the conservatives we lost this year. Tevi, we were just going to break talking about uh, a woman who, whose name not a lot of people, not a lot of people knew. Uh, Bill Buckley knew her well, and thus also knew how important she was to the conservative movement. I'm glad you picked her up to remember her. Barbara Keating aide. What did you want to? What did you want us to remember her by? Well, I just think she was one of these women who really was a, an organizer and who was. Um, believer in conservative ideas, was willing to defend conservative ideas on TV. She was kind of a, a go-to woman defending conservatism in the 1970s and 1980s on the network shows. And, uh, I think those roles are so important so that you, know, you get a, a different look at the people who are out there defending conservative ideas, people who don't look just like you and, and, and Lisa. And um, uh, she ran for Senate, as I, I mentioned before the break, uh, and she just... Uh, she. She was willing to roll up her sleeves and work hard to advance conservative ideas. And I think those are the people we should be honoring in, in these kind of end-of-year reminiscences. One of the things, um, she ran she ran herself on the conservative ticket, is that right? Yeah, in New York State. That was Which the was party a viable that because, as we know, William F. Buckley's brother, James Buckley, ran and won. Yeah. A Senate seat for six years in New York State as a conservative. Yeah, and she worked for him. She ended up on his staff, right? And remember, you and I have talked many times about legendary staff, people who've had yeah. some of the best staff in Washington, including your former boss, Bill Bennett, when he was Secretary of Education. But James Buckley is also don't, one don't of the don't Isn't that really the legend? Those were the two best staffs in modern conservative history, Bill Bennett's and James Buckley's. Uh, yeah, I think they're up there. And who else would have had an, a, a well, Dan Quayle had a great staff. Oh yeah, yeah. But in retrospect, yeah, right. We can we can we retrospectively change some of that. <laughs> Barbara Keating Eid stands uh, aid stands for um, something that's hard to put your finger on, but those of us who have kind of worked around her in Washington have certainly noticed it if we had our eyes open, and that is there is a whole. Uh, cadre, maybe that's yeah. I'll just stick with cadre. There's a whole cadre of people who have worked in various places in the conservative movement that didn't, let's say, become as famous as a Don Rumsfeld or, gosh knows, a Gordon Liddy, but or Rush Limbaugh, but and and their names would never really be famous outside the circles they ran in in Washington, perhaps, but without whom the conservative movement and agenda would not have been successful and would not have been what it is. I, you and I could probably make a list of a thousand, well, I, at least 500 people that we could probably put in that category. She she sounds to me like one of those types. Yeah, and look, you know, very few people make it to cabinet-level positions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and Rumsfeld uh, is one of those few cabinet-level people who people remember. I mean, who was the Secretary of Energy under Bush? You probably don't know it. Nobody, you know, it's not known, but everybody knows Don Rumsfeld. So, Just so uh, I can again, sleep tonight, what is the right answer to that question? Samuel Bodman. Who? <laughs> Samuel Bodman. Okay. All right. All right. Um, <laughs> okay. Good enough. Good but, enough. But, um, but, you know, it wasn't a test that it was just the point is that, you know, there's all sorts of people in, in Washington who kind of become Washington famous for a brief period. Very few become you know, world famous. Yeah, like right. Rumsfeld. And no, I remember fair. when I was just a young intern on the George H.W. Bush presidential campaign, the legendary Lee Atwater spoke to us. Yeah. And I remember he said, if you want to be rich in this town, you got less than a ten percent chance of doing that. If you want to be famous, you got less than ten percent chance of doing of doing that. But 
if you want to learn something and make a difference, you've got a hundred percent chance of doing that if you work hard. And uh, you know, words to live by. And by it's the way, hard. yeah, I'm glad you remembered that. I'm glad you said that. I have to tell you, for all the um, all the uh, deserved uh, verbal punishment Washington D.C. takes. Uh, it is one of the few cities, unlike any other, where if you do keep your nose clean and work hard as a young uh, man or woman, you really can move very far, very fast on merit. It really is a city. It, yeah, it rewards a lot of crud, but it rewards a lot of merit. Yeah, and, and you can also get a lot of stuff done. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very hard to change the overall direction of the U- U.S. and the government's just too big and unwieldy. But if you really focus on a specific policy and try and make a difference there, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Yeah, and we can name examples. This was a short segment. We have a longer one coming up. Let's talk about uh, Angelo Cotavilla and uh, Donald Kagan when we come back, okay? And then, oh, yeah, we got to do Bob Mundell as well. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Tevi Troy, author of Fight House, as well as many other books. Uh, his uh, memory of uh, conservative me- remem- remembrance of conservatives we lost in 2021 is the most current piece of his in the Washington Examiner. That's what we're talking about. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest, cultural historian. He has a piece of the Washington Examiner, Remembering the Conservatives We Lost in 2021. If you want to read it, you can get a link to it from my uh, Twitter feed today. Tevi, uh, interesting how how strong foreign policy took a hit this year when you look at the aggregate, at least from the perspective of a conservative. Uh, two giants in foreign policy, Angelo Cotavilla and uh, Donald Kagan. Do, do the second first. Do Donald Kagan first. Sure. Well, Donald Kagan was uh, actually born in Lithuania, uh, grew up in Brooklyn, um, and by force of his intellect uh, made his way to the Ivy League um, studied uh, Greek history, wrote an amazing book on the Peloponnesian War, and uh, became a, a grand strategist. And uh, thousands of students took his class. They learned a, a great deal from him. Uh, but he also uh, advised um, top foreign policy officials about how to think about geopolitical strategy. And he uh, he he put two sons into the world of uh, of uh, intellectual foreign policy thinking too, didn't he? Yeah, Bob Kagan and uh, Fred Kagan, mm-hmm. and both of them are kind of foreign policy strategist type in Washington. Yep. Uh, Fred, I believe, was uh, heavily involved in the, the development of the surge in Iraq, which yep. kind of uh, did uh, calm down the violence there for a while and was, it was a, uh, an effective strategy. Uh, but uh, Kagan uh, was also willing to stand up against the uh, political correct um, smothering of free speech on university campuses, yep. on the Yale campus, and... Um, he was asked, and the piece is an item I counted the piece, is he was asked how he was willing to stand against the tide of uh, leftism on university campus. And he said, uh, growing up in Brooklyn, he was a Yankee fan. <laughs> and that, uh, that taught him how to um, uh, stand up for himself and for his own perspectives against what everybody else thought. No kidding. No kidding. Uh, the other one I knew pretty well. And I have an old long story about it, which I won't bore the audience or you with. We can talk about it another time. But uh, I knew this man very well, and I knew a lot of his students very well, and that was Angelo Cotavilla. Do you want to say a word about Angie? Yeah, but I, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on him as well. But here's another person born outside the U.S., born in Italy, uh, comes to the United States also by force of intellect, uh, gets a Ph.D., 
Um, it's frustrating in academia, or to Capitol Hill, where he's instrumental in developing our missile defense policy yeah. while working for Senator Wallop. Um, and then he goes, he, go, he you know, again, demonstrates uh, his intellect and, and goes and works uh, at the Hoover Institution and I believe it was Boston College, it was uh, Boston University. BU, BU. Uh, yeah. BU, it was Boston University. And, um, uh, and he writes uh, 14 books, including one that was highly admired and um, excerpts of it were read on air by Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. Uh, in the book of the Revolt of the Elite, and yep. he talked about um, uh, the way the elite govern uh, the U.S. And this book was written about 15 years ago and kind of... Um, uh, interesting uh, premonitions of some of the stuff that we, we see today. But, I mean, he was always uh, interested, you know, even though he was a patient, very smart, he was, he was concerned about that common man and how the elites were, were treating them and not always treating them so well. Well, it's just a little little small fact of, of, of maybe some meaning to a handful of people. But you know how I first met Harry Jaffa. It was over an invite to meet him for coffee uh, because he knew I disagreed with him on and i you know whatever called him a <laughs> and name. been vocal about your disagreement yeah 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 i wrote an editorial against him and uh, he invited me to coffee and along in our in that first meeting in our conversation just a little funny fact of history uh harry had asked me he said well let's start with ronald reagan is there anything you agree with him on and i said not a single thing and he said <laughs> starting with what Boy, how and, things have changed <laughs> yeah right i said he said starting with what and I said, and I, you know, I'm grasping for a straw at this point. Uh, usually if you ask that of a leftist, they always give you the same answer. And I was about to, which is everything, you know, it can't do the specific. You have to do the everything. And I said, uh, Star Wars. And, and he reached behind him and he grabbed a book and he handed it to me. He said, have you ever read this? And I said, no. He said, read it and come back and talk to me later. It was the SDI book by Angelo Cotavilla. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. You, know, you have to wonder how many books Harry had behind him. Yeah. I mean, what other issues he yeah. was raised. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you want those shoes in white or in black? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That is terrific. Uh, Angelo a was point. a different kind of thinker. Um, could not be categorized in his foreign policy outlook by any school of thought. Uh, there's a lot of different schools of thought in conservatism and foreign policy. He was his own school of thought and uh, maddening to some and, to, and, and, and tremendously insightful and helpful to others. That was a big thing of his, by the way, helping others. He loved, you know, p- people like this, you know, professors like this, too few, but we know them and we have succeeded. We have gotten by with their help. Uh, really did everything they could when a student was looking for help on a job or an introduction or something like that. Angelo delighted in doing that for his students. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a – this is just so beautiful. Hadley Arcus, uh, you know Hadley as well as I do, uh, did an obituary of him, and this is how he closed it. Um, I would, he said almost 25 years ago, Angelo did his own translation of Machiavelli's The Prince – I would teach from that book, and there was always one line that stood out to me to describe Angelo himself. It was the line about Hero Two of Syracuse, Quad Nile Illi Deret Ad Regnatum Practor Regnum. For Angelo, I'd render it this way. He had every attribute of a king, save that of a kingdom. Isn't that beautiful? That is really nice. That's classic Hadley, too, by the way. <laughs> 
Hadley, who is uh, still with us. Uh, Sheldon Adelson, Foster Freeze. I knew Foster quite well. I didn't know Sheldon at all. They, uh, the conservative movement, could not have um, could not have succeeded without their philanthropy. Uh, Jackie Mason, Norm Macdonald, Mort Saul, who kept kept us laughing. Uh, and uh, we really only have about a minute or two left. Is there one I left out that you so must say? Can I just say, say something quickly yeah. about both of those? Yeah, yeah. So I, I mentioned the, the philanthropists because uh, you don't have a movement unless you have people who can support it financially. And I mentioned the comedians and people who know more soul will say, oh, he wasn't a conservative, but he was for free expression. Yeah. And, he, and he criticized liberals as well as conservatives. And, you know, these, these days that makes somebody a conservative because if you're willing to... Um, to criticize all sides, to see everything fairly, and to fight for free speech—that's yeah. uh, that, what makes you a conservative today. And, um, uh, and you know, so, so I admire them, and we'll miss them. I have to do Tommy Lasorda. This is a great sentence. He once attended a dinner with Bill Clinton, where he said, "I'm a Republican. My father was a Republican, and his father was a Republican." So someone asked me once, "If your father was a thief and his father was a thief, would that necessarily make you as a thief?" He said, "No, that'd make me a Democrat." <laughs> Tommy Lasorda. All right. I met him once, too. I met him at a uh, restaurant in New York where he – I was with Bill Bennett. He invited us to join him for dinner. It was it was a hell of a dinner, as you wow, can I'm imagine. Wow, sure. It was great. Yeah, as you can imagine. People who know how to eat, which I call men at work, by the way. <laughs> men at work. <laughs> Tevi Troy, you're the best man. Thanks for this. Thank you, Seth, and uh, happy holidays you to you bet. and uh, all your listeners. You betcha. Bless you, sir. Be good. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back, and thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. We'll be back tomorrow. Don't go away. Uh, we'll be here. Um, you know, uh, if you followed me, I, I've been rereading a lot of older books, and I have an idea in mind to something I want to do with that. We can talk more about that tomorrow. One of the books I'm reading is a 1959 book by Bill Buckley, Up From Liberalism. And I discovered this passage. I had to highlight it from You know how we often talk about how hard it is to debate with the liberal? They won't follow any fact and they don't think we even have a right to debate. Let me just read you from page 86 of this book. Nothing has changed and this isn't new. I, I didn't realize it. He writes, a second marked characteristic of the liberal in debate with the conservative is the tacit premise that debate is ridiculous because there is nothing whatever to debate about. Argument based on fact are especially to be avoided. Many people shrink from arguments over facts because facts are tedious, because they require a formal familiarity with the subject under discussion, and because they can be ideologically dislocative. Many liberals accept their opinions, ideas, and evaluations as others accept revealed truths, and the facts are presumed to conform to the doctrines, as any dutiful fact will. So why discuss the fact? In dismissing a conservative's contentions, it is not enough merely to say that the matter under discussion is closed. It is usually necessary for the sake of discipline to berate the person who brought the conservative perspective to the floor. Nothing has changed. It has been with us ever thus. But if we're going to save this republic, we better change it. We better change it. God bless you all, and thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us. Until tomorrow, I'll bless it again. God bless you, and class dismissed.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.